Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Where We Got This in Conversation. You're about to listen to a conversation between PhD student Julia Tequila and Professor Carrie Brown, director of the Lao China Institute. Julia's PhD research looks at the relationship between the UK and China through the medium of film. She's analysing an agreement between the two countries on film production and distribution, which she likes to call a treaty. She also looks at how films from mainland China are received here in the UK. In this episode, she reflects on what is considered propaganda in each country, why other foreign language exports like the Oscar-winning show Parasite are so popular with Western audiences, and more details about studying a PhD, like finding her voice when it comes to writing her thesis. Let's get on to what she has to say. Great. Well, I'm Kerry Brown, so it's great to have this discussion with one of my doctoral students, Julia Tequila. So first of all, Julia, could you say a bit about what your research is and why you decided to research this area? Hi, Kerry. Thanks so much for having me. So my research is looking at the relationship between the UK and China and how that has been reflected in uh, film exchange and film collaboration, in particular co-production, since 2011 until 2021. The reason that moved me to uh, look at film was an initial drive towards Chinese films. Uh, Before joining King's, I did a master's in Chinese studies with a focus on politics and films. And then uh, as part of this master's, I spent six months in China, in Shanghai, where I first had this very random question. I had a gut feeling that since the last time I had been in China, something had changed regarding maybe the atmosphere. It was not like it was not a material change, but I thought something had changed in the way that foreigners were perceived in China. And I thought, is this going to be reflected in Chinese films? So I initially wanted to do a master's dissertation about that, but the topic was completely different then. And that evolved into thinking how Chinese films, which do have a specific representation of foreigners, especially uh, the most recent Chinese films, are received in the UK. And since then, I digged in and I found, thanks to during my research, that actually the UK, which is where I live, and China had tried to create a collaboration on film via a co-production treaty. And the fact that I had not heard about this at all made me actually question, what is this treaty? What does it represent? But why should you have heard about it? Because I've studied Chinese studies, I've studied Chinese films, and I uh, have lived in the UK for five years now. And I thought, not necessarily hearing about the treaty, but maybe hearing about UK-China film co-productions, which had been particularly successful, would have probably happened. And it hasn't, or it hadn't. So I thought it was quite interesting to see what the results of this treaty were, and also maybe why this treaty was made in the first place. Presumably, one of the things that you've been thinking about when you talk about the way that China is perceived in Britain or Britain is perceived in China 
are you thinking of ideas of soft power or are you thinking of propaganda or other forms of influence? I mean, how do you conceptualize this? So I did think of soft power at the beginning of my research because I thought uh, this is a term which is quite common in conceptualizing in particular Hollywood and the influence that the U.S. foreign policy can pursue through their film industry. Soft power essentially relates to the ways which are not directly political in way in which a country can have influence, if we want, on other countries through cultural outputs, which includes film. And I thought soft power would be an interesting way to link film with politics and international relations. I happened not to find this concept particularly useful for my own research because I think the way it is political, it transforms culture into something which I think is too instrumental. So it transforms cultural exchange into something that is done to obtain an outcome. The second reason why I didn't find soft power to be particularly useful for my own research is that it sees films, in my case, as an object, as something that can obtain an influence on the audience that looks at them, which might be true for some films, but it is not automatic that by looking at a specific films, the audience will be convinced by the narrative that this film is trying to convey. So I don't think looking at soft power or measuring soft power is a particularly useful perspective to look at this kind of exchange. Propaganda is another very interesting one because it is something that has very different connotations in China and in the UK. So propaganda in Chinese is a neutral term. It doesn't involve ethical evaluation. When you put propaganda in a British context, it automatically has a negative connotation of brainwashing. So something that is classified as propaganda will not lead to an exchange, probably the opposite. So what I find more useful, I think, is referring to cultural diplomacy, which opens more to exchange and opens more to what can go wrong in that exchange. But it doesn't start from a perspective of misunderstanding, if we want to put it like that. Collaboration, you talk about the treaty or this British-Chinese collaboration agreement. Could you say a bit about that? When was it signed? What was it meant to do? And what has it achieved in, in practical terms, the sort of outcomes that have come from it and how you evaluate them? Yes. So the agreement was signed in 2014, and then it was put into power in 2015. And it was signed in the context of the so-called golden era of Sino-British relations. So it was a year that was 2015, I believe, was um, proclaimed as the year of Sino-British cultural exchange. It was an era really of optimism for cultural and creative industries between the UK and China. The interesting part about this particular topic is that this treaty talks about cultural benefits that are to be received by British parts and Chinese parts who engage in co-production. However, it's not very, really clear what these cultural benefits refer to. And I think if we look at the value that the film industry has for the UK and for China, in both countries, the film industry is really important. But the value it has as a creative industry is really different. In China, the film industry has always been linked to politics uh, since really even before the People's Republic of China was founded. It was a means to convey politics. And that doesn't mean it is something negative, as I was referring to the term of propaganda before. 
it was used to uh, build a national identity, to build uh, faith in uh, socialism. And in the UK, it's really probably the opposite of that. It should be as detached from politics as possible, at least in theory. So what these benefits were, what these two parties were looking for when signing this agreement was probably two different kinds of objectives, something similar to soft power, if we want to call it like that, on the Chinese side. So influence to maybe better the image of telling the correct China stories in the UK or contributing to that. So for sure, improving its image and of course, money, because everyone likes that. And from the Chinese side, I believe it was probably a way to help the British film industry to reach a mark, the Chinese market, because um, if a film is produced as a co-production, it bypasses quota regulation. It means that it can enter the Chinese market without being subject to restrictions. So potentially to being able to reach a huge amount of cinema goers, huge box office success. So that was probably one of the ambitions. Another one uh, was probably to promote the uh, UK film industry globally. However, none of the results from both sides seem to have been reached, at least to my understanding so far. So probably a bit of miscommunication there. I mean, there have been a couple of films that have come from this. I mean, are they any good? Are they ones that you would like to watch or uh, that you kind of would recommend to friends? I would definitely like to watch some of these. So for sure, I know there has been a documentary by BBC Earth. So it's a nature documentary. There has been a comedy that's called A Special Couple. Some sources say this comedy is set in Northern Ireland, but actually I've read that it's probably set in London. So that's quite confusing, but I really want to watch that. There is a film currently in production, it's called The Untamed, and it is about a person who translated Shakespeare's words into Chinese. So that's probably an interesting watch as well, but it was supposed to be produced in 2021 and it still hasn't been released. There have been a few more, but not box office hit, if we want to put it like that. And there have been some other co-productions which apparently have not used the treaty. And it'd be interesting to find out why that's the case. So for practitioners, for directors, people in the film business, this would give them money then. I mean, the mm. outcome of this would, would that they would get access to funding or money to make particular films. Is that what it gives them, this treaty? It gives tax relief. It does that. And it gives access to, to distribution in both countries on, or more because it doesn't have to be two countries. It can be more than two. So it, it does give access to distribution in all the countries that have been involved in the co-production. So I know you've worked a lot before on film and particularly on film in China and Britain beyond anything that's come from this arrangement. Chinese film market now is massive. I mean, it's probably the biggest in the world, I believe. And Chinese films, you know, they get huge numbers of people watching them in China. And then when they go abroad, they're not so popular. I mean, Korean films are really popular. The Parasite and things, I mean, that's won an Oscar. Whereas Chinese films are not really that well known in Britain. Why is that? Is that because of the language barrier? Or is that because they, they're telling stories in a different way? Or lack of distribution, familiarity? I mean, because certainly British or English language films in China have been very successful in the past. So why is there that disparity? So first of all, when we talk of Chinese films, it's really important to clarify what kind of films we are referring to. So there are films from mainland China, which go through censorship, they are approved. 
And that is one thing. If we talk of Chinese language films, then we include uh, films from Hong Kong, from uh, Taiwan, from Singapore as well, uh, and from all areas where Chinese is spoken, that, or whether that's Mandarin or Cantonese. And of course, depending on where these films are from, there are differences in arts, in artistic expression, in the way these films are made, in, of course, political presence or lack of political messages and control by authority. And there is also within mainland Chinese films, which is what I'm looking at in particular, there is the so-called art house genre of Chinese films, which sometimes get approval just because they are meant to be exported and the censors uh, know beforehand that these films will not be really popular within China. So they're, they're just approved in a less formal way, if we want to put it like that, to be exported for film festivals, for academia. And these are very artistic films, maybe experimental films with low budget, sometimes with very clear political messages. And these are watched and enjoyed by a very niche kind of audience. And then at the same time, they appeal to such a specific target audience that they are not really marketed for big audiences. If we look at mainland box office hits, so uh, as you refer to the, the Chinese film market being the biggest in the world. So uh, there has been a huge development within the Chinese film market since 2016-17 uh, until today. That's the result of a new kind of patriotic films. So as I mentioned before, patriotic films have always been present in the Chinese film history. But what has changed now is that these films have really higher technology, higher budget. Uh, they are still encouraged by the government, but they are really good at distribution, at market success. So they enjoy a huge success in China. Some people say it's because these numbers have been changed a little bit, the box office numbers. Some people say it's because these films are free to watch in China, but still they are watched by a massive amount of people. In the UK, these films are often talked about by mainstream media as propaganda films or as really stupid action films with no plot. So something that doesn't really bring anyone to watch these films, apart from probably foreign students from China, temporarily in the UK, or people from the Chinese diaspora. They don't really appeal to British audiences or to international audiences in the UK, first of all, because of the way they are described by the media and the narrative is not great. These films are really explicit in what they're trying to say. If they have a political message, they really shout it at you. And if you don't get it in three hours, there's often a caption at the end of the film saying this film is made in honor of the heroes of the revolution or something like that, which is probably not really appreciated or maybe seen as satire, I can imagine, by a British audience. And I think something that I found quite interesting is that sometimes if a film is really critical about its own country, about its own country institutions, as is the case with Parasites or other products from South Korea, or there is also a film on Netflix called Hunger, uh, I think it's from Thailand, and it's also really critical about class differences within uh, its own country. These films are really popular because they are critical of their own country. 
And perhaps there is some pleasure in Western audiences in seeing foreign products being critical of their own country. And when they are showing pride, uh, when they're forcing, they're insisting to tell that Chinese stories are good stories, probably convincing foreign audiences otherwise. So that's probably something else. So it's language barrier. Yes, it's probably one, but I think language barriers can be overcome as we have seen with the case of Parasite. For listeners, would you give a recommendation or two of what you would say were good Chinese films currently for non-Chinese audiences to watch? I've watched the film recently, which is probably very art house, but I really loved it. So if you know a little bit of Chinese history, I would recommend watching A New Old Play. It's a very experimental film. Sorry, what was it? What's it called? A New Old Play. And something else that I would recommend is Farewell My Concubine, very classic, or Exploring Films by Jiang Wen. Uh, one mm. of my favorites is Devils on the Doorstep. Just because I really love films which have a hint of irony and also films which tell you a bit, a bit about the history of a place. Why does your research matter? Because film is a really underestimated object in international relations. And it actually is a brilliant and really important way to communicate uh, and to exchange cultural or even political ideas. If something is not understood, especially between, I'm thinking of um, the UK and China right now, very political, uh, very different political systems, very different ideologies. I think films can help understand other point of views without necessarily agreeing, but I think they make sense. And and I think it, it matters as well because culture is probably one of the few ways that's open for exchange to be meaningful. Julia, how are you? I mean, obviously your research depends on a lot of field work. How are you doing that? So I have two main questions. The first question is uh, related to the UK-China co-production treaty. Uh, and for that, I'm currently interviewing people who have contributed to this treaty um, and to being written and, and agreed. And I'm also interviewing uh, film practitioners, so producers who have benefited from the treaty or who have not to find out why they have not. So I'm doing that within the UK and I'm doing semi-structured interviews, which I will then analyze with thematic and narrative analysis. I think fieldwork so far has been a really exciting experience, but something that I didn't think I would experience is anxiety when asking questions. I don't even know where that's, com that's coming from, but it's probably the fear of the other person thinking that you don't know enough. And also, sometimes it's hard to get hold of people who are willing to take part in research. And then my second question is how uh, films from mainland China are received in the UK. And for that, I will do focus groups following very small scale screenings of a selection of films here at King's, which then yeah, will be followed by focus group discussions. And I will analyze them to get impressions of audiences. Now, to talk about your study and your, your way of studying, how have you found the process of doing a PhD has kind of helped or contributed and how has it been challenging? It's helped process a lot of information and trying to make sense of it. And also something that I've always struggled um, to do, I think, is finding my own voice. And when reading so much and listening to so many opinions, at some point, your own voice comes out. I think 
you you start reading so many different opinions and you start thinking, okay, I really agree with this person, but I think this is maybe exaggerating too much or maybe this person is saying absolute BS. Um, so I think it's just out of spite that your voice comes out at some point. So that was something that I did struggle on, uh, but I find it much easier now. And constructing arguments in a way that is coherent, because sometimes I think that what I write or what I say is making a logical sense, but maybe I'm skipping sentences. But it's really important when writing to think of the person who's reading. So that's something that I've also been working on. And time managing. I would say if you do a PhD and work as well and do as many things as possible, you have to find time. It forces you to manage your time and dedicate time every week, every day to the PhD. Otherwise, I think maybe you're a super organized person and you have an Excel sheet for every day in the next three years. I'm not that kind of person. So I think getting a little bit of structure really helps with a PhD. A lot of people doing a PhD do find it quite isolating and you know, you're on your own a lot. How have you managed to find ways of dealing with that if you've experienced it? So I've tried to be involved in as many activities as possible. So I would say, first of all, not forgetting friends and family outside PhD, because that's really important for mental health and trying to find a community within academics at events and any kind of really interaction that's uh, offered. It's really important because first you learn about other things which are related maybe to what you're studying, but not necessarily the same topic. Otherwise, you can go mental by looking at the same sentence, only that for three or four years. And yes, knowing that there's life outside of it. And I think taking breaks is also really important. What do you intend to do, you know, when you've finished your research and actually kind of got everything done? I would like to stay in academia and pursue an academic career. I really enjoy teaching. So referring to how not to stay isolated, I think teaching, if there is a possibility to do that, is a really great way to stay in touch with people and be engaged in, in something that's not necessarily related to the PhD, but really important from a human perspective. And yes, yeah, so whether teaching or research or both, I think ideally I would like to be an academic, but as a second plan, probably I would like to organize film festivals or something similar to that. Yeah, some uh, cultural activities, but ideally I would like to be an academic. Great. Thank you, Julian. Well, it's been great to speak to you. It's an important area that you're looking at. So really appreciate the experiences and insights that you've given today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Well We Got This In Conversation podcast with Julia Dequila and Professor Kerry Brown. You can find out more about Julia's research on the Lao China Institute's website. This episode was brought to you by the School of Global Affairs. It was produced by Julia Stempowska and edited by Rachel Wall. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.